Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Let's read those verses and ask the Lord for His blessing. Let's remember, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the one and true God, and He is holy, and His word is holy. Let's approach with humility and awe. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Amen. Father, again, we ask that You would bless the proclamation and the hearing of Your Word, that Your Spirit would take Your very Word and apply it to our hearts, and that You would change us forever, Lord. These are not just words on a page. This is the living Word of God, which is able to make us wise unto salvation, to prepare us for final salvation. Lord, help us today, and we know that you will, and we give you thanks that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, last week, we began to look at Romans 8.28 and what we called the supreme blessing of God. And what is the supreme blessing of God? Well, it is that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And we began to look at the first two of the three points that I would like to share with you about Romans 8.28. We saw, firstly, its grand scope. Romans 8.28, in its scope, is... um, immeasurable. He says all things work together for good to those who love God. That is, those things that are good, those things that are bad, and those things that maybe are neutral, all things. God, as the mighty conductor of His orchestra, is working together, causing to work together to accomplish exactly His good pleasure. And our confidence is in Him, that He is able to do that. There is an implied trust of faith in this One who is able to orchestrate all things for the good of who? Those who love God. Those are the recipients. And that was the second point last week. The unworthy recipients are we who love God. And we ask the question, how is it that anyone can love God? Well, those who love God are those who simply obey the Lord. That's how you know that you love the Lord. This love that is talked about in Romans 8.28 is not the love of men. It is the agape love of God. An otherworldly love that comes down from above and fills our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God, causing us to love Him and to love one another. We who love God are those who have been recipients of the love of God. 
Another way of saying that is, those who love God are those who know personally that they themselves have been loved by God. And what does that mean, practically? It means that you know that you were a slave in spiritual Egypt, so to speak. In bondage, uh, under lock and chain to Pharaoh, who is also called General Sin who would only command your obedience and you willingly yielded it to Him before you knew Christ. You knew that you were a slave and then when the greater Moses led you out of that spiritual Egypt and His name is Jesus Christ the righteous, you saw the love of God on display in your life personally. You saw that Jesus the Christ led you out of slavery to sin into His glorious freedom, a slavery to righteousness. And you rejoice in Him. And so the yearning of your heart is obedience. It is a desire to obey as a a posture of thanksgiving for what He has done for you. We looked this morning in our Sunday school um, at the Ten Commandments and how they begin They begin specifically in the context of the Lord proclaiming Himself as Savior. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt from slavery and bondage in Egypt. I am the Lord your God, therefore, here are the Ten Commandments. Keep them from a heart of gratitude and thanks for me for what I've done for you. And that simply describes the love of God demonstrated for us in His deliverance of us, received by us, and pointed back toward Him in our obedience to Him. Following Jesus Christ is how you know that you love God. Not perfectly. That objection comes up often. Christians are not perfect. But the pattern of our lives now that we are in Christ is such that we do follow the Lord. We love Him with our hearts. And we do seek to obey Him all the time. That is from the new heart which He has given us in this salvation. So we know who are the unworthy recipients. It's we who are the ones who have been enabled to love God. Pastor Stan said a couple of weeks ago in our study in Ephesians, it takes love to know love. That's right. If you have seen the love of God yourself, then you can love God. Now, Paul doesn't leave us there in Romans 8.28. That was the first descriptor, if you will, of the recipients of this supreme blessing of God that all things work together for good for them. But then Paul continues his phrase in verse 28, and this is where we'll pick up today and, and lead into verses 29 and 30, which is, what theologians have titled the golden chain. That's why the message is titled the golden chain. But let's let's continue to look at the glory that the Lord has for us in verse 28 because what we will see at the, at the latter half of verse 28 here is going to help us to understand verses 29 and 30. So the third point from last week, we have the grand scope of the supreme blessing is all things. It's unworthy recipients are those who love God. And thirdly, it's sovereign source. Where does this 
supreme blessing come from? Well, it comes from this phrase. Those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. Actually, in the Greek, His is not written there. It just says, literally, to those according to purpose, called they are. And so the first question that we should ask is, well, whose purpose? The hymn is inserted in, in italics in the New King James and perhaps in your versions as well for clarity. But we want to make sure that that's correct because it's not in the Greek. Whose purpose? Well, we know that this must be God's purpose because the antecedent of what Paul is describing or who Paul is describing here is God. He's saying to those who love God. And so it is His purpose. That's the most natural reading of the text. Paul cannot be referring to the purpose of men because the recipients are those who are called. And recipients don't call themselves. They are the called. Paul, in the very next chapter, in chapter 9 of Romans, in verse 11, he says this regarding purpose. For the children not yet being born, that is a reference to Jacob and Esau not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works but of him who calls. The purpose here is clearly in Paul's mind the purpose of God. And in Romans 9, he's going to tie that purpose to election specifically or predestination, which we are going to get into today, Lord willing. But I just want you to see, first off, that we're talking about the purpose of God. And what is the call that Paul is linking to this purpose. He says, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time on this with you all because this is important for understanding Scripture in general, but it also is going to help us, as I say, as we get into the golden chain section in verses 29 and 30, specifically with reference to call and calling. So, Calling in Scripture is distinguished in two ways. In, in Scripture, you have what's called, or what theologians have called, the general call and the effective call, or the effectual call is an older way of saying it. The general call you could describe as an external call. It's a, a call that goes out to everybody indiscriminately, and it comes to the ear of everyone who is in earshot of the word that is being spoken. And so that would be the call that we all, as those who preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, herald when we say to all men and women and children, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That goes out to everybody. That's called the general call. The problem with the general call is in and of itself, it has no power. The call which is general, is only words. They're words that come to the ear, but they go no further than the physical hearing of the person. And so the person who hears that general call may not respond. They may refuse the general call. You might remember something of that in the parable of the wedding feast that the Lord describes in Matthew 22, 
where a king prepares a great wedding feast for his son who is to be married. And he sends his servants out to call those who have been invited to this wedding feast that he has prepared at great expense to himself. And those who were invited and called were not willing to come. And so he sends out other servants and he repeats the call again. And the response is met with mocking and lack of interest. And they, uh, they go back to their business. Others respond to that call with anger. And they seize those servants and they treat them shamefully and they even kill some of those servants. That, of course, is a, a reference to the gospel going out first being preached to the Jews and how they rejected the call of the prophets and ultimately of the prophet, the Lord Je Jesus Christ. And the king is furious in his response and he destroys those murderers and he burns up their city. And then he tells his servants to go out into the highways and to invite foreigners to his wedding feast. And they are called, and, and many come into the wedding feast, and the hall is filled with both those who are described as good and bad. And they come into the wedding feast, and there is one noted there by the king who is not wearing a wedding garment. And the king commands that that man be bound and cast out of the hall and out into what's described as outer darkness. A picture of hell and destruction. So the point is you have different responses to the general call that goes forward. Many are called, right? But few are chosen. Many are called, and, and you may get some who don't respond to the call and refuse to come. You may get another class of people who do come, but they refuse to put on the king's garment. A picture of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're those who come into the church and they are in the midst of the body of Christ, but they've never personally put on that robe of Jesus' righteousness as their only covering. But sooner or later, the king will find out and he will cast them into outer darkness. And then there's those who come because they heard the call and they put on the robe and they're there to attend the wedding feast. And they're the saved. They're the chosen from among those who are called generally. So that is the general call. And general call, the general call is not used very much in Scripture. The thrust of every time you see the word calling used in the Scripture, it's used in this other sense, which is what's called the effective or effectual call. That, in contrast to an external call, is an internal call. That's a call that goes beyond the hearing of the physical ear and comes to the heart of the person and calls them with power. That's the difference between the effective and the general. One has power and the other does not. And the effective call does exactly what God intends. It invites sinners to repent and ensures that they do it. This is the power of God on display. And I want to illustrate this principle for you so you don't think that this is some isolated call that Paul is referring to in the Scriptures. Rather, this is the pattern of the Lord throughout Scripture. 
Think, for example, of back in the creation in Genesis chapter 1. What is it that the Lord does when he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing? Doesn't he say, let there be light? Let there be a firmament that divides waters from waters? Let the waters come together and let dry land appear in another place? Let the lights in the firmament be beyond display. The sun and the moon and the spot and the stars. Let the waters abound with living creatures and so forth. In other words, what is he doing? He is calling life out of nothing. He's calling energy out of nothing. He is calling order out of chaos. This is the effective call of God, and we first see it in creation. And then we see that same powerful call on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the call that happened at the tomb of a man named Lazarus when he was dead four days and Jesus came to the tomb and he called Lazarus by name. So this is a specific call. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came forth bound in his grave clothes. That's the same call that created the worlds out of nothing. It's also a spiritual call that calls the dead to life. Just like we see with Lazarus. That happens in the heart of everyone who hears the effective call of God. Paul in Romans chapter 4 verse 17 said, this in regards to Abraham who believed God's promise that God would make him the father of many nations. Paul said, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So you see how these two things are paired together. His calling of those who are dead to life and his calling of those things which do not exist into existence. That's the effective call of God. And I want to give you a quick sampling of how we see this in the Scriptures so that we are clear on this call and how powerful it is to accomplish exactly what the Lord intends. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 1, we're just going to go through a couple of texts here in the first few chapters of Mark's Gospel. And let's listen for and look for this call of the Lord. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Does that, has that ever struck you as amazing or strange? The Lord gives a word. He calls these fishermen as disciples to follow him, and they just come, no questions asked. 
they leave their livelihood, they leave their family, and they just come. What caused them to do that? This effective call that comes to the heart that causes men to respond and to come. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. We have a similar instance with the calling of Matthew. Mark 2, verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Same thing. Alphaeus, Levi, follows the Lord. No questions asked. Come down to Mark chapter 3. This is to the calling of his twelve apostles in verse 13. Mark 3.13 And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve. He appointed twelve as apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. He called to himself those he himself wanted. This is sovereign election and calling, and they respond. There is no choice but to respond because they want to respond. This is a divine calling. Saul, you remember before he became the Apostle Paul, he says that he was called by the grace of God to be an apostle. You can read the account of that in Acts chapter 9. Brothers and sisters, all of these examples are meant to show that the, the effectual call, when it comes to your heart, you know it because you respond in obedience. You, you follow the Lord. You begin to follow Him as the new pattern of your life. This is exactly what has happened to you if you are in Christ this morning. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And we get another insight as to how this happens. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. That's a bleak, dim picture. A hopeless picture. We were condemned, walking as children of the devil. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's a, a picture of how this call functions. We who were walking corpses, spiritually speaking. We who were children of the devil and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our minds, God called to life. He made us alive together with Him when we were dead. That's just another way of saying you were a Lazarus. 
And God called you to life spiritually and raised you up to heaven to be seated with Christ even now, spiritually. An amazing truth. This is the work of the effective call. And because this call is effective and does exactly what God intends, it has been termed the irresistible call. The irresistible call. And there are people who object to this notion of an irresistible call. They feel that it's an assault on the free will of man. But the truth is, those who are generally called or called with the general call will never come unless they are effectually called. Why? Because the natural man always resists the call of God. He has no interest in the things of God because he is in love with himself and and with this world. The truth is that nothing and nobody can resist his effectual call when it comes. The wind blows where it wills, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God blows, when the effectual call comes, it comes in power. It's mysterious. No one knows how He works in the hearts of men exactly. But we know that He does because of the evidence. There is a sound, there is a result that has taken place after the Spirit blows on your heart and on your life. Nobody resists his effectual, irresistible call just as the darkness cannot resist the light shining on it and exposing it. In the same way, the most hardened sinner who has a hard heart, as Scripture describes it, is not able to resist the gracious call of God because the Word of God is like a hammer that smashes that hard heart to pieces and reforms it into a new heart that is tender and pliable, and able to respond with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord does not ever work against the will of man. That's a a misunderstanding that people who object to this irresistible call will bring forth, or a misunderstanding that they have. The Lord is not working against the will of man. He, in His brilliance, changes the will of man by giving us a whole new heart. So that the new desires of our heart are now that we want to come. We want to hear. We want to follow. He changes the disposition of the inward man through the new birth. That's how this call works. His spirit blows on us and causes us to be born again. He gives us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand spiritually. And so we follow Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer this morning, it's not because you made God's call effective by your belief, as if your belief were the condition upon which the effectual call comes to you. Actually, it is the reverse. You were called effectively by God, and that is why you responded in faith, and that's why you believe the message, and that's why you continue to believe the message. His effectual call is at work in you. And we see this calling again and again in Scripture. I gave you several examples, but just to note a few more. In this epistle to the Romans, the way it started was Paul refers to himself as one who is called. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, 
called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That's how the book of Romans begins. Paul is called an apostle, not just named an apostle as if that name were given him only, but that he has been given a new status. He has been called into a position of service for the Lord. Separated from what he thought was serving God to actually serving the Lord. The description that the Apostle Paul gives to the saints to whom he writes in Rome is, among whom are are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Called saints. Not just given the title, but called by Jesus Christ with this effectual call to a new status. That is, that you should be saints. The the word in Greek is aios, holy ones. You are called by Christ to holiness. That's what this effectual call does. Peter puts it this way in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see how the calling, as it is implied, always moves somebody from one position to another? From not being a saint to being a saint. From not serving the Lord to serving the Lord. From darkness to marvelous light. The Lord's marvelous light. Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Called into the fellowship of Christ You were previously a stranger. You were an enemy. But now you've been called to be in fellowship, to be in union with Him. In our corporate reading this morning in Isaiah 41, to give you an Old Testament example, the Lord says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. This is Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called from its farthest regions, and said to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and have not cast you away. The Lord calls to Himself the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, those who have faith of the Jews and the Gentiles. He calls them from the furthest reaches of the earth, the corners of the earth, to Himself by this effectual call. So, this is not the general call that Paul is writing about in Romans 8.28. He is talking about the effectual call. This call that comes in power. Jesus, our Lord Jesus, summarized this well in these terms in John chapter 12, verse 32, when He spoke of His impending crucifixion. He said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all peoples to Myself. Or will draw all to Myself. That is not to say will draw every person on the planet to Himself. Otherwise, every single person would be saved. But all kinds of people 
People from every corner of the earth I will call to myself, from every class of life, as I am lifted up. And that is a reference to the cross. So here again is the call. No man comes to the Father except by the Son. And no man comes to the Son but by the Father. There is a drawing, there is a calling that takes place. And you might wonder, well, how does it happen practically in our experience? Well, the way this happens is the Holy Spirit brings conviction. He brings convincing, as the Lord says in John chapter 16, of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He brings that to the heart of the sinner. To know that he is a sinner, to know that the standard of righteousness is perfection. It's the standard that God sets and not any man. And that there is a judgment coming for all One judgment coming where everyone will be judged according to his deeds, whether good or bad. And that convincing of the Spirit of God, quite frankly, puts the fear of God in a person. It causes them to see their true condition, that they are sick, not physically, but spiritually. And that they are in need of a Savior, of a physician who can heal their soul. And so when the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, is presented to them, they embrace him as their Lord and Savior. That's how this call works. The Spirit of God working in the heart. Listen to how Matthew Henry commented on this effectual call. He said, the effectual call calls people, quote, from self and earth to God and Christ and heaven as our end. From sin and vanity to grace and holiness and seriousness as our way. That's very um, helpful. It's diagnostic. Brothers and sisters, how do you know if you've been called with this effectual call? Well, have you turned from yourself and from the things of this earth as being your love, your primary love? And have you turned to God and to Jesus Christ and to the things of heaven and spiritual truth and to corporate worship like this as your first and true love? If you have, then you know you've been effectually called. If you have turned in your life from pursuing sin and vanity to pursuing holiness and righteousness, which is profitable for all things, then you know that you've been effectively called by God. So Paul is not referring to the general call here in Romans 8.28, nor when we, talk, when we hear about the call again in verse 30, because this call is intimately linked with divine purpose. Paul says this call is according to purpose, according to his purpose, God's purpose. That word simply means a setting forth, a setting forth. It, it is that God sets forth his will and establishes it. He lays it down as what he wants. Scripture defines God's purpose in a few different ways. And I want you to note these. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Listen to how Paul describes the purpose of God. He says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one, 
all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So the first thing to note here is Paul describes God's purpose as that which originates in himself. His purpose is, in other words, not conditioned on anything external to God. It is purposed only in himself. It is described as being in accord with his good pleasure. And wonderfully, it revolves all around the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would gather together in one. That there will be a great consummation, a restoration, a reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That is his purpose. And it's found only in himself. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, according to the eternal purpose, same word, which he accomplished in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this purpose is not only found in himself and in accord with his good pleasure and revolving around Christ, but it is also an eternal purpose. In other words, it had no beginning and it therefore has no end. It was and always has been. Because God exists outside of time. And Paul to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. His eternal purpose, loved ones, is that his people would be spared. Would not endure his wrath as others will. But that they would be spared, not condemned, and that they would be saved in Christ. So you see how the purpose of God revolves around Christ again. See, when we speak of purpose in human terms, um, we speak in terms of what we hope to accomplish. We speak in terms of intention and wishes. But when we come to Scripture and we read about the purpose of God, we are reading about that which is settled, determined, unchanging, guaranteed, and eternal. Why? Because only God has the power, the foresight, the ability to orchestrate all things according to his good pleasure for the good of those who love him. Only the Lord can do that. Man does not have that power. So he can purpose all he wants, but if the Lord does not give his stamp of approval, it's not happening. So, we, I want us to see that this purpose of God it really undergirds everything. This is the cornerstone. His purpose that all things would work together for good for those who love Him. He has guaranteed that outcome. If we understand His purpose can't change, that it's eternal, He has guaranteed an outcome for all those who have been effectually called. And that outcome is ultimate glory. It doesn't um, negate the fact that it also calls us to a holiness of life now as He prepares us for glory, but certainly as the final outcome, it is preparing us for final glory. So, we know whose purpose is in view. It's clearly the purpose of God. But the question next is, what is his specific purpose that he's revealing to us here in Romans chapter 8? And that is why Paul, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, wrote verses 29 and 30. 
Verses 29 and 30 are going to demonstrate and elaborate the purpose as the cornerstone of everything that comes. So it's important to keep that in mind. And Paul begins verse 29 with for, uh, or in the Greek, it's the word that, which is to say, which is that? It's an explanatory, it's a, a demonstration or an elaboration of what this purpose is that he uh, mentions in verse 28. And here it is, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I was reading Dr. Lloyd-Jones's commentary, which I usually do because he's very helpful on, in this book of Romans. And he issued a warning to his church, which I think is healthy for us to do here at Creekside as well, and for those who are listening. And the warning is, let's not approach these verses, verse 29 and 30, lightly. We need to make sure that we are approaching these verses with the right attitude and the right heart. This is, as I mentioned last week, and I'll mention again this week, this is holy ground that we are standing on. This is very much like Moses when he was called by the Lord to come near to himself on the mountain and to see that strange sight, the burning bush that we read about in Exodus chapter 3. Just listen to the first few verses here of Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. The reason I read that is because I believe that Dr. Lloyd-Jones is right, that this text in particular in Romans 8, 29 and 30 is holy ground. Moses was um, captivated with a sight a burning bush that is not consumed. And it was his determination that he would look into it and find out how this thing is happening. And the Lord's response to him is, you will not come near and look into this phenomenon with your own uh, powers of observation. You will take your sandals off your feet and you will hear my word. And that is really the same um, posture that we want to take as we come to these truths. See, brothers and sisters, these truths which we are about to discuss together, to expound, these are impossible to understand fully. These truths are difficult to reconcile. If you could understand them perfectly, you yourself would be God. See, this is not just a matter for intellectual debate. If we approach these texts in, this, in that way, I would not um, equivocate in saying that you are approaching it sinfully. That's wrong. This is a divine revelation. This is an insight into the mind of God 
that he wants us to know. And to what purpose? Certainly not to puff us up with pride so that we can say, I have an understanding of effectual calling and predestination and election and foreknowledge. No. The intended result of these truths, these doctrines, is to humble us before him is to produce worship before Him, is to take the sandals off our feet and recognize we are in the presence of Holy God. These are His truths which He is opening to us that we might glorify Him. And I want to give you just a couple of tests as we get into this to know if you are approaching these doctrines in the right spirit. The first is, these doctrines should produce in you a sense of amazement and astonishment, a sense of wonder for the Lord And it should lead you to praise him for who he is and for what he has done for you. The second thing is these truths should cause you to desire holiness of life more and more, not license to sin. And if you find that you come away from these truths and you feel like you have more license to sin, you've not understood these truths at all. And I would actually say you're in a very dangerous position, spiritually speaking. And I would call you to repent. These truths are intended to make us confident of our salvation in Christ. That's why they're here. And the more certain you are of your salvation, and that means of your final glorification, which is to come, the more you will want to prepare yourself for glory now. The more you will pursue holiness of life. Separation from sin more and more. So, with that said... Let me give you the context of Romans 8, 29, and 30. As I said earlier, theologians refer to this section as the golden chain of salvation or the golden chain of redemption. Others have called it um, a pearl necklace, and it's a similar idea either way. On the front of your bulletin, I put an image of a chain so you can see these links and the truths that correspond to the links. There are five links in the chain. The chain is one, but there are five components. The first is foreknowledge. The second is predestination. The third is calling. The fourth is justification. And the fifth is glorification. And these will form the five points of our outline starting today. We'll we'll just get through maybe the first couple, and then we'll do the rest next week, Lord willing. Octavius Winslow, who was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century, called these links, hidden links in the great chain of your salvation. This is a a peering behind the curtain, so to speak, of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the whole package of your salvation. It's a chain or a necklace stretched out because it extends from eternity to eternity. What I mean by that is if you look at the first two of these doctrines, the foreknowledge and the predestination, those happened pre, meaning before anything existed. That is to say, in eternity. The next two in the chain, calling and justification, happen in space and time for each one of us in our experience. And then the last, glorification, well, we've seen in Romans 8, 17 and following, that that will happen at the end of this present age, which is the age of time, when time is over and eternity is where we will be. So from eternity to eternity, this chain is one, and yet there are five distinct chains or doctrines. That's a word that just means truths. 
And we want to understand them individually, but we also want to make sure we see them as one unified whole. And the idea of the chain being connected is that each link is sequentially bound to the next. In other words, if you have one link, you have all of the links because they're connected and cannot be broken apart. If you have been foreknown, for example, the wonderful truth of the golden chain is you will be glorified. If you, if we go to space and time, have been justified, you know that you will be glorified and you can work backwards and also know that you also were foreknown and predestined. I want you to note on these five links that every chain represents God's divine action. Every chain is God's divine action. Man's work is not found anywhere in this chain. It's the work of God that is emphasized and put on display. I want you to notice how many times the word he, the pronoun he, is repeated in verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's a reference to Christ. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's nine times if I can count correctly. That's a lot. This is emphasizing the work of God. Now, you could say that we did see man's responsibility in verse 28. Where? The recipients are those who love God. The Shema, the great command to Israel is, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is a responsibility of, of man, and that is to love God. But there is a very important reason why Paul didn't stop, verse 28, with those who love God, but continues with, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If you love God, it's because God has called you according to his purpose. Your ability to love him is, him is undergirded by his ability in you. That's the point. So there is a harmony between the responsibility that man has. We don't deny that. Man has responsibility. You must repent. You must believe. And we call men to those things but we understand that it is God who enables what he requires. Why? So that he receives the glory in all things. That man has zero reason to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay. So all these links are connected together and they flow from the divine purpose of God. Remember, the purpose of God is his cornerstone upon which all of these follow Let's look first at the foreknowledge of God. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Whom he foreknew. That's a word that is a compound in Greek. And again, the prefix beforehand, pro, is there. And the word yinosko, which is the word to know. K-N-O-W. <clears throat> some have understood this foreknowledge as... God looking down the corridors of time before anything happened and seeing all who would believe on him, on his son, 
and then electing them to salvation on the basis of their faith. That's how some have interpreted this text. But that is not what this word means at all. If, if you just have a good understanding of the word that's used for foreknowledge, you will not come to that conclusion. This word does not simply mean knowledge, as in knowing about something. This is the word that refers to intimate knowledge that one has for another. In fact, it's the word referring to the intimate knowledge that a man has for his wife. That's the, the context of this foreknowledge, and it's placed in the context of beforehand, pro, from eternity. Commentator William Hendrickson defined this foreknowledge as divine active delight, and I think that's excellent. It's describing God's intimate love for his people. It's describing his good pleasure. In other words, those who, whom he foreknew are those whom he set his love upon. Those upon whom he said is love. This is another word for the love of God, really. So you could think of the golden chain of salvation, and I would argue it, you could describe it also as the golden chain of love. Because it's the love of God which drives all these other links in the chain. The first is the foreknowledge. His divine active delight. Listen to just a few instances of how this word is used in Scripture. In Romans 11, verse 2, the Lord says, or, um, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So this is a word for knowledge that is intimately tied to his people. It's reserved for God's people. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. This is a divine love that he places upon his people. Matthew Henry described this knowledge of, God's, of God for his people in the same uh, context as his owning them. Let me repeat that. God, God's knowledge of his people is the same with his owning them. In other words, he sets his love on those who are his own. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having the seal. The Lord knows, there's that word again, those who are His. He knows those who are His. All those who, whom He set His love upon, He knows intimately because He selected them. John chapter 10, verse 14, the Lord Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep, same word, yinosko, and am known by my own. So there's an ownership that is paired with this foreknowledge of God with this eternal love that He has placed upon us. All those who love God now were foreknown, loved in eternity. Right? We love God because He first loved us. It's just another way of saying the same thing. And those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Predestined. This is a word that starts with that same prefix, pro, meaning beforehand. So it, again, it happens in eternity. And it's the word 
orizo, which is the English word horizon. So the idea of the horizon is God makes a separation from the sky or between sky and earth by a horizon. It's a way of saying he makes a separation. He selects a group. This is what predestination is. It's also called divine choice, or it's called the doctrine of the election. It's all the same thing. God makes a sovereign choice. And beloved, why is it important that we should know that both of these words, foreknowledge and predestination, or that God did something for us beforehand. Why is it important that we know that? Because He wants us to know that His love and His election are not conditioned upon the work of man in any respect. He takes man out of the equation altogether. The Lord is telling us that salvation is from Him alone because it began, if you will, in eternity, which has no beginning. Wrap your mind around that. God does, however, have a condition for his election, for his sovereign choice. And it's described by Paul in Ephesians 1.5. He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So he does condition his predestination on one thing, and that is the good pleasure of his own will, of his own eternal counsel. That's the only thing that conditions his election. And what has he marked out his loved ones for? Well, here's the grand purpose that we talked about in Romans 8.28, and that now continues into verses 29 and 30. It is to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, that we would be jointly formed or fashioned into the very likeness of the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. In short terms, that we would resemble the Lord Jesus. That we would resemble him. And not just in our final glorification when he transforms us in the twinkling of an eye, but gradually now as we look upon him and we are changed from one degree of glory to another even by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 It's a progressive transformation. That is the grand purpose for the church that she should be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, he is the archetype. He is the pattern. He is the mold into which all of us have been poured and are taking shape more and more as we grow in his grace. I've got a lot more to share with you, but I want to be sensitive to the time as well. So let me just close with a couple of observations here. Um, The first is this, just three observations. This conformity to the image of Christ, this is the great good that Paul talked about in Romans 8.28. Not just as a final glorification, but now as we walk more and more in holiness of life. So just a reiteration of that last point. I want to underscore that. Conformity to Christ is the great good of Romans 8.28. Secondly, God's purpose not only involves our conformity to Christ's image, but that Christ himself should be honored above all. In other words, our salvation is not primarily about us. Our salvation is primarily about the honor of Jesus Christ. That is very important to understand. How do you know that? Because Paul says, 
we being conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn, excuse me, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn is the word that means not uh, firstborn in time like we think of it, but the preeminent one, first in rank, first in authority, the, the captain of our salvation. Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1. Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. He is the honored one. The ultimate purpose for salvation is for the glory of God. It's that Christ should be exalted and honored above all. That every knee should bow before Him and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, right? You know what's interesting about the word purpose that Paul used in Romans 8.28? I didn't want to disclose it up front because I think it fits really well here. It's the same word that's translated for the word showbread in the Old Testament. You remember when you would walk into the tabernacle and later the temple? You walked in and on the left you had the, the, the grand candle stand, and on the, the candlestick, and on the right you have the table with the showbread that was laid out. And there were 12 freshly baked loaves that were brought every week and laid out in two rows, one for every tribe of Israel. And they were laid out and presented before the Lord. Why do you think he had the priests do that ritually week after week after week? Well, the word for purpose is God is setting forth. He is putting forth before himself these 12 loaves that are representative of his people, patterned after the likeness of the one who would come and call himself the bread of life. We are to be those loaves of bread who are good smelling, good in appearance, nutritious meaning a blessing to others, life-giving rather than life-taking. That's the purpose of God, ultimately, as he conforms us to Christ, that Jesus would be honored because we are being patterned after him, set before the Lord for his good pleasure. It's a wonderful picture. So, firstly, again, that this conformity to Christ is the great good of Romans 8.28. Secondly, that Jesus would be honored above all in our salvation. Thirdly, and finally, that God's salvation, if we understand purpose, if we understand foreknowledge, if we understand predestination, that there is uh, no change in any of these things. They are forever settled in heaven. Then that means that there is no potential in God's salvation at all. There is no potential in God's salvation. It is guaranteed for His elect, for those who love Him. Because he has loved them first. And we know this in the text here because Paul says that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brethren. Brothers and sisters, if salvation were up to us, if there were a condition that were up to us somehow in order for us to be saved, ultimately I'm talking about, if there were no first cause underlying all of this, which is the Lord then Christ may not have been the firstborn among many at all. Christ could have theoretically been the firstborn among none if no one had received Him, accepted Him, 
believed on him. But that is not the case. He is prophesied as the firstborn among many brethren because salvation is a certainty. Listen to Matthew Henry as I close. He says, Had the event been left at uncertainties in the divine counsels, the event of salvation, to depend upon the contingent turn of man's will, Christ might have been the firstborn among but few or no brethren, a captain without soldiers and a prince without subjects, to prevent which and to secure to him many brethren, the decree is absolute, the thing ascertained, that he might be sure to see his seed, that there is a remnant predestinated to be conformed to his image, which degree, excuse me, which decree will certainly have its accomplishment in the holiness and happiness of that chosen race. And so, in spite of all the opposition of the powers of darkness, Christ will be the firstborn among many, very many brethren. That is good news. Praise the Lord. Next time, brothers and sisters, we will look at the rest of these links in the chain, our calling, our justification, and our glorification. And I just pray this morning that your spirits are encouraged, that you are um, prostrate before the Lord, worshiping Him in your spirits at these marvelous truths which are for um, us to glory in our God. He is good. Let us give Him the praise and go to Him in prayer now. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the glorious truths of <clears throat> the eternal counsel of God that You have opened up to us somewhat to see and to glory in. Father, we do want to approach with humility and reverence for You. This is the mind of God. Who are we, Lord, that You should open Your mind to worms such as we, those who were dwelling in the dust and who, who had no hope but a life of condemnation and an eternity of judgment until you had mercy on us and you set us on our feet and you called us to yourself in judgment. You, you brought us to see that we were judged when Jesus was judged at the cross that our sins were placed on His shoulders, that He was bruised for our iniquities and not His own. And by His stripes we are healed. By His death we are enabled now to live. We are brought to life. And Your Spirit has done that effective work in each one of our hearts. We who have come to the wedding feast of the King to celebrate and honor the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we stand in clean garments, clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith in Him. Lord, we give You the praise. We're not worthy, but we are here and we are standing in Your grace. And we want to give You the praise for that. Help us to live lives of thanksgiving, Lord, evermore, each day. Forgive us our sins. Forgive me, Lord, my failings. Father, thank You that there is forgiveness with the Lord, that you may be feared. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.